0: According to His promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by Him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We're moving on this morning to Luke chapter 12. Luke chapter 12. We've spent so long in Luke chapter 11. I hate to leave it. It's kind of like an old friend now. But moving on now to Luke chapter 12. Episode 13 in the last Judean and Prean ministry of Jesus, possibly the longest title in our Harmony of the Gospels, Jesus deals with hypocrisy, covetousness, worry, and alertness. By the time we're done, we'll actually expand on this a bit because that's only uh, four subjects, hypocrisy, covetousness, worry, and alertness, and Uh, I think it's better that we go ahead and break this chapter down into a total of ten emphases, um, subject areas that he addresses in a uh, machine gun type format, one after another, after another, after another, after another. And by the time you get to the end of the chapter, it's like he takes a great big uh, deep breath and plunges into chapter 13 and hits him with two more. Because uh, when we get down to chapter 13, uh, I don't know, uh, I would have put... Probably the uh, chapter division a little bit differently. I would have taken it down through chapter 13 and verse 9. But that would have added nine more verses to a chapter that already has 59. So that may have been quite a bit. In any event, it's a roller coaster. And he's going to hit him. He's going to hit him hard. And he's going to hit him often. And that's uh, what we want to emphasize here this morning as we start going through it. All right. Before we begin, let's take time for silent prayer to make sure that we, we are, as believer priests, not only in fellowship, that's kind of a given, But in fellowship and humble to receive the word implanted, shall we pray? Most gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for the truth of your word and the privilege and blessing we have this morning to assemble together, to have prayer time, to uh, to study the living and abiding Word of God, to study to show ourselves approved. Father, uh, we had a man that passed through here a little bit earlier, and uh, you know his name, you know his needs and his struggles. Uh, thank you that we were allowed to provide him uh, a Bible, and we pray that uh, with the Scriptures in hand that you might minister to him in all that he needs. Father, um, we just thank you for being faithful in our lives day by day and moment by moment. We thank you in Christ's name. Amen. All then. Yeah, we do uh, want to keep an eye on the cameras and the doors and a little bit closer than usual. All right. Luke chapter 12. This comes right on the heels of where we've been. Uh, he taught a number of hard-hitting messages in chapter 11, which built up some opposition, some hostility. And so in the face of that hostility, Jesus decides to go ahead and chill for a little while, maybe back off a little bit. No, not at all. So you see at the end of chapter 11, when he left there, the scribes and Pharisees began to become very hostile. Uh, they were hostile before, but at this point now it becomes open. It becomes blatant. You know, there are people that uh, you know uh, are uh, don't like you or whatever, but they're more subtle about it or they're more... Uh, Uh, diplomatic or they uh, you know they'll say things behind your back but not to your face kind of a thing well when the hostility grows and when the hatred gets so undeniable then they it's like they cross a line as it were and now it's just in your face and now there's nothing even subtle or hidden about it it is the open hatred and hostility and the arrogant questioning in uh, in terms of verse 53 there at the end of chapter 11 and the plotting against him the trapping and everything every They've been looking for excuses. Now they're looking for opportunities. And that's uh, to me, that's a huge step. And so we get into chapter 12. And it's not just my comment uh, on this. The scripture itself says under these circumstances that the uh, conditions that are observed there at the end of chapter 11 are the ones that frame the activity for everything that follows under these circumstances after so many thousands of people had gathered together that they were stepping on one another, he began to say to his disciples, first of all, uh, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. And so the first item on his list is hypocrisy. He's going to actually detail ten separate items here in this chapter that he's going to address, one after another, after another, after another, after another. But it's in the venue of hostility. And that's what I hope uh, we can emphasize here this morning. All right, point one then for our study. Uh, I found a helpful outline in the Outline Bible. I don't know if you have that or ever heard of it. Uh, In some chapters it's useful. In other chapters I I wonder why (laughs) they outlined them the way they did. But that's okay. Um, I like this one, however. The Outline Bible divides this chapter into a decalogue of ten emphases. Okay, that's the plural of emphasis a decalogue of ten emphases, breaks this down into ten separate areas. And uh, the first one here is hypocrisy, and it moves on from there to uh, the fear of the Lord, the true fear that we'll look at in verses 4 and 5, uh, God's care in verses 6 and 7, and so forth. We're going to tackle all ten of these. I don't expect, though, that we'll get very far today. In fact, if we go through the first two today, I think we'll be doing very good. Um, With increased demonic opposition. That's what we want to observe. What is it that's driving these crowds? With increased demonic opposition, Jesus launches his teaching ministry into high gear. He just starts hammering away more and more and more, faster and faster and faster, harder and harder and harder. No uh, apologies, no excuses, no uh, slowing down and... uh, I, I like that. I view that as a pattern. I see that as a principle, particularly in our generation, in our culture, where we're observing the darkness get darker. What is it that Bible teaching churches ought to be doing uh, as far as that goes? It's interesting. The language here is so vivid. It'd be kind of fun to just tear this apart on a on a uh, first Corinthians basis where we're doing three chapters a year and, and uh, slow down and take four months to do a, uh, a chapter. But the, uh, the vividness of verse 1 that described not only the circumstances, but the myriads, the myriads that are here. And that's the term that's employed. The, uh, the myriad of uh, tramps, if you want to give it that vocabulary. Point two then. Increased hostility by the religious leaders. Prompted what verse 1 calls here the myriads of tramps. And I like using that word just because it's unpopular these days, <laughs> right? Um, myriads, we're told. A myriad technically is, uh, refers to a number of, of it's basically 10 uh, millennium millennia. So it would be 10,000 if you give it a, a literal number. Uh, it is such a vast number, however, that sometimes it becomes euphemistic. It becomes idiomatic. Like today when we talk about millions, we just throw out a big number, and it doesn't really mean literally millions. You know, like when I tell my children, I've told them millions of times not to do something. Okay? It's not literally true. It, uh, we can't conceivably do something a million times in any limited period of time. But the idiom itself communicates a massively high number. And so the, the number of the angels, for example, are, are called myriads of myriads, which then takes it you know to a, an exponential power beyond that. Uh, the number of demons that are unleashed in the tribulation is called uh, two myriad myriads. And so that usually gets rendered as 200 million or um, understood to be an uncountable number when it comes down to the 10,000 times 10,000 twice. For the number of demons in the tribulation. Well, uh, murias, if you want the concordance uh, uh, research on this, the word is murias, number 3461, M-U-R-I-A-S. And um, not not used all that often. You'll have some fun tracking that down. And then the verb katapeteo. This is a word study we're not going to engage in today, but it is kind of interesting. Kata is a prefix that generally indicates a downward motion or a downward direction um it's the opposite of ana Anna is upward like you must be born again or you must be born from above that's ana in the prefix, but the kata prefix is the downward prefix, and so this is the idea of stepping down, stomping down, trampling down. The idea that uh, the reason why it's a beaten path is because it's been beaten down, that it's been trod uh, over so many times that the uh, the the plant life is just crushed, that the the vegetation is just embedded into the into the uh, soil, and so you've got a beaten. And this, uh, by the way, is the origin of the uh, of the now uh, politically incorrect term for tramps. All right. When uh, <laughs> the other day we were discussing, you know, the difference between a, a tramp and a hobo and a vagrant and, and some of the different terms that have been used over the years and different times. Now, of course, we don't we're more sensitive and we use more, you know less insulting and less stigmatizing terminology because we don't want to offend anyone's sensibilities and, and things of that nature. And so, uh, you know, we don't want to be insulting or mocking in any way the uh, urban outdoorsmen that uh, that are among us. Yes, and so with all due respect to the urban outdoorsmen, the, uh, the, the word tramp was uh, originally crafted to recognize the fact that uh that that's what they do they 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 come into town and they are they're, they're walking everywhere and and through property and across grounds and and tramping down the uh the uh, ground around them and and so forth so they came to be known as tramps and that's what these guys are they are tramping all over one another uh so many myriads had gathered together that they were katapateoing uh, on one another and uh, you think, well, that should be a good thing, right? I mean, if you're a Bible teacher, don't you want to just have hordes and hordes of people, myriads of people, just, you know, more people than you can keep track of? And the more people you have, the more money you have, and obviously God's blessing you. And isn't that what you want? No, we don't want uh, hordes or myriads of tramps just stepping all over one another in a in a mob scene that is designed, uh, according to these circumstances, again, for his uh, trap, for his snare. And to put so many people in that, in that uh, proximity is just asking for conflict, asking for uh, trouble to, uh, to manifest itself. And so, uh, no, the purpose is not to gather more people than you know what to do with. The purpose is to shepherd and teach and minister to those people that God has entrusted to you. That's the, uh, the purpose for a called-out assembly. Interestingly enough, though, what does Jesus uh, keep as his priority? He began saying to his disciples, first of all, to his disciples. So there are mobs and crowds and hordes, these myriads of tramps all over the place. And they're pestering with these questions, which we're told about at the end of verse 53, the, the hostile questioning and so forth. And yet he keeps his first priority to be teaching his disciples and um this is a thing that we see here at the first part of chapter twelve. I, I think all of this would be interesting to consider because um some of the tactics that are employed by the um uh, the uh enemies of, of christianity and so forth is they'll do just this they'll get uh, they'll get a mob together of 50 people or 60 people and they'll go uh attend a church service someday at some point point. and could you imagine what would happen if, if 50 or 100 strangers came in here on a sunday morning and sat down and then all of a sudden partway through the message they you know rip off their shirts and they got these uniform things on underneath and start spraying things uh, and, you know this is this is what we're reading about in the news doing millions of dollars of damage with spray paint and other kind of things in uh, disrupting a church service. All right. Well, emphasis number one is hypocrisy. And that's what we look at in verses uh, one through three. So point three, well, we're just going to handle the rest of these emphases here in following points. And so emphasis one is at point three and then emphasis four. Or emphasis 2 is point 4. And we're just going to take it like that down through all 10 emphases here in this chapter. But the first one is hypocrisy. And that's the one that uh, um, he starts with. Because that's the one that uh, really struck him at the conclusion of chapter 11. Here are these so-called religious people. And what do they want to do? A very unreligious act <laughs> of putting them to death. And yet in the name of religion they will do so with the full faith and conviction that they are serving Adonai. They're serving Yahweh Elohim. They're serving the God of their fathers by putting this evildoer to death. And why is he an evildoer? Well, because uh, he's not supporting them. <laughs> and so by definition, he's hostile to them. He therefore must be destroyed. And that is uh, an element here in terms of hypocrisy. And that's what we're going to look at. Now, it's not the first time he's spoken on hypocrisy. Matter of fact, uh, back towards the end of the Galilean ministry, he addressed hypocrisy in the context of Matthew chapter 16. Uh, It was an episode that had a a title there condemning the uh, carelessness of the apostles. Let's look at it in Matthew chapter 16. And you'll note very similar terminology to what we have here in Luke 12. Similar terminology, but different context, different venue, and uh, serves as a reminder to his disciples. He's not actually teaching the mobs. He's teaching his disciples with the mobs in, uh, in uh, earshot, as it were. I don't know. Do you ever do that? Hold conversations knowing that there's people in earshot? And wondering where the true ministry is really taking place? <laughs> All right. And um, it's, uh, it's an interesting Tactic. All right, Matthew 16. The um, this is where Pharisees and Sadducees wanted to see a sign from heaven, as if he didn't just get done feeding four thousand the chapter before. And uh, he highlights the fact that in verse four, that an evil and adulterous generation seeks after a sign. What is it that motivates the desire for the gee whiz and the wow and the and the uh, sensational? We seem to have a lot of that in our culture. But he says, a sign will not be given it except the sign of Jonah. In other words, until this culture starts to orient to a fulfilled scripture and the plan of God and what he's already given in his revealed word, you don't need the G Wiz factor. So he left them and went away. And the disciples came to the other side of the sea, but they'd forgotten to bring any bread. So this becomes a, an opportunity for Jesus to uh, teach regarding leaven. So he said, watch out and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. And we'll have that leaven terminology again in our passage today back in Luke 12. So they began to discuss this amongst themselves, saying uh, he said that because we didn't bring any bread. (laughs) All right. Guilty about what they think is their own shortcoming. All right. He wasn't at all interested in, in the bread they forgot to bring or the bread they didn't bring or anything else. He just got done feeding four thousand with a, a couple of loaves and so he's not really worked up about uh how well they've they've stocked their pantry. And uh and I just there's the more I think about this, the more I've it's starting to uh come to me because I've seen it in in uh at different times among different folks here in terms of um Things that uh, people are going through and they're sensitive to what they're going through, and then because they're sensitive to what they're going through, then when the pastor says something and all of a sudden it's like, Oh, he's talking about me or or he, he's only saying that because because I'm going through this, right and so here's the uh they're, they're saying to themselves well he he said that because we didn't bring any bread, okay No, he's saying that because he wants you to beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. He wants you to guard against hypocrisy. He is teaching the word of God as he's led and convicted by the Holy Spirit. And, uh, you know, don't think that that he's tailoring his messages because of personal things going on in any person's uh, personal life. So uh, Jesus, aware of this, said, you men of little faith, why do you discuss among yourselves that you have no bread? And here's what happens in terms of a deficient faith. Men of little faith, that's, that's quantitative and qualitative, alright? And because of that, they're misoriented and they, they can't focus on a spiritual message. All they can do is fixate on a temporal situation. And uh, they're locked in on earthly food and they don't understand. And we talk talked to them in terms of leaven here. He's talking in the spiritual realm. Anyway, it goes on down to verse 11. He says, how is it you did not understand, or you do not understand, I'm sorry, present tense, you you still do not understand that I did not speak to you concerning bread, but beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Then they understood. He wasn't telling them to beware of leaven of bread, but of the teaching of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. They finally caught on. And look how many times it took them to catch on. And why is it now he's reviewing it again in a redundant, repetitive uh, way, teaching it again in Luke chapter 16? Because that's the way we learn. Line upon line, precept upon precept, here a little, there a little. This uh, it, you need to be reminded from time to time. We all do need to be reminded from time to time. So Luke chapter 12 then, I'll pass over the Mark account. Mark 8.15 is parallel to uh, Matthew 16. No need to... Uh, to read them both so back to luke 12 then he says uh beware of the leaven of the pharisees which is hypocrisy all right now in the context of matthew 16 uh he was highlighting their teaching here he's highlighting the attitude behind the teaching okay and it's hypocrisy whichever way you look at it verse 2 says but there is nothing covered up that will not be revealed and hidden that will not be known Accordingly, whatever you have said in the dark will be heard in the light, and what you have whispered in the inner rooms will be proclaimed upon the housetops. These two verses, we want to understand them because uh, some people teach them one way, other people teach them another way. You can look at them two different ways, and um, uh, I prefer to teach them both ways and to show that what we have here is a parallel construction that needs to be rightly understood. So we'll break down both verse 2 and verse 3 along the twin lines of uh, revealing that which is hidden. And we'll, we'll examine the aspect of it. I think this is, it may be the most important part of the study because of the uh, twisting that people do to the doctrine of privacy. And they turn this doctrine of privacy into this uh, doctrine of secrecy, which means that uh, they can cloak their own... Um, carnality, and, and and you've got no business saying anything about it, or thinking about it, or telling them anything about it, because it's their privacy. So let's take a look at it. Beware. Beware. There's several different ways the Bible warns us to beware. Um, very recently we've seen bleppo, which is where you look after, you you watch after, you look out for, and there's a Concept of looking out for something. That's an application of bewaring. But with pros echo, it's a little bit stronger than that. It's it's more than just simply a looking term. You know, you can look for trouble or or be on the lookout so that you see it before it happens. um, With a a visual prevention of of, uh, sin or visual prevention of uh, temptation and so forth. And that's good. We, We should do that. This goes a step beyond that, however, with pros echo. And uh, echo is to have, and and pros is uh, towards or against. And uh, so what you're doing in terms of the leaven is that you're keeping it far from you. You are having it away. You are having it far. And uh, so not only do you see it for what it is, but you hold it at a distance. It's not just a visual alertness. It is actually a tangible, physical um, process by which you not only guard against it, but you'll keep it at arm's length. Alright? Keep it at arm's length is a way I like to think of that. The leaven, the zume, the leaven, which is hypocrisy. And okay, we understand leaven in this literal sense and then in it its metaphoric sense uh, what happens with leaven is spreads it grows it doesn't just sit there it actually actively works and it uh, doesn't just infest one part of the loaf it fills the entire loaf and that's why it's a fitting metaphor for the hypocrisy of the pharisees because one hypocrite uh, doesn't just exist by himself he spreads that hypocrisy into uh, the entire loaf and that's why it's uh, so insidious in a corporate application. Fascinatingly enough, we uh, we glean from this for a church application. Austin Bible Church is a local church, but the whole church universal has to guard against hypocrisy. Interestingly enough, however, uh, Luke 12 is not an ecclesiastical passage. The Gospel of Luke is uh, Old Testament. It's, it's uh, the dispensation of Israel, so far as that goes. Okay, You understand when I say Old Testament, it's Pre church, okay? It's it's still in the New Testament part of your Bibles. Uh, it's still part of your Greek New Testament text. But the events that take place in the Gospels are Old Testament events prior to the uh, the coming of the church. All right. So we're told to beware the leaven which is hypocrisy. If you start to fall into hypocrisy, it spreads. There's a typo. Hypocrisy has an S. It should be S Y. H-Y-P-O-C-R-I-S-Y, hypocrisy. Now, delivered to the disciples in the dispensation of Israel, this principle is also one for church application. And we'll take some time to uh, simply review these. I think they're familiar. They ought to be familiar in uh, a lot of different ways. But hypocrisy is a leaven that will devastate any corporate body. Any corporate body, whether it's the corporate body of the church, whether it's the corporate body of Israel, uh, any corporate body—if it's uh, the corporate body of a marriage—hypocrisy will will wreak havoc in a family. Hypocrisy wreaks havoc in a nation. Hypocrisy wreaks havoc. Politicians that say one thing and do another, for example, is destructive in a nation. There again, am I getting too political? <laughs> I didn't see the speech last night, so I don't know what he, what was promised. But I'm neither am I holding my breath. All right. So uh, let's look at some of these Romans twelve, Romans twelve nine. Romans twelve is a great chapter for. Uh, you can almost use it as a church constitution. I mean, it's a it's a chapter that spells out the uh, the role of the church body to edify one another, to bless one another. And it, uh, it's all an application of grace. And we uh, are to uh, edify one another as members of, of the body of Christ. So you'll notice um, this is all a part of being uh, presenting your bodies, living holy sacrifice, uh, being... Uh, transformed by the renewing of your mind i can't stress that enough too many believers are uh, negligent in their transformation negligent in their mind transformation and when you're not being transformed by the renewing of your mind you cannot avoid it the consequences are you're going to be conformed to this cosmos and so um It's just uh, something we want to guard against. And if you see family members or or, uh, loved ones that are in that circumstance, do what you can to encourage them to become true disciples of the Word of God and get that mind transformed. Then he goes on in verse 3, from the individual priesthood now to the corporate body. Through the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you not to overthink, not to think more highly of himself than he ought to think, but to think so as to have sound judgment. As God has allotted to each a measure of faith. And your measure, your portion, your allotment, okay, is that which is going to serve to glorify Jesus Christ in the body that He has designed you for. For just as we have many members in one body, and all the members do not have the same function, so we who are many are one body in Christ and individually members one of another. And your measure of faith, your gift, your ministry, your effects, your uh, measure of faith, your place in the body of Christ is yours. It is unique. And if uh, no one's going to replace the things you're doing in uh, the exact way that you're designed to do it. So verse 6, since we have gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, each of us is to exercise them accordingly. So, if prophecy according to the proportion of his faith, of service and the serving, he who teaches in his teaching, he who exhorts. That's so what we're going to be looking at in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, the parakaleo function of the, par- of the paraclete. He who exhorts in his exhortation. Also would include comfort and encouragement. He who gives with liberality. He who leads with diligence, he who shows mercy with cheerfulness. So all the gifts coming together, every gift, every ministry, every effect, the whole thing being crafted together like a symphony, all the different instruments, all the different voices, all coming together for the glorification of Jesus Christ. Then to the corporate applications now in verse 9, Let love be without hypocrisy. First order of business for believers in a church. If you're all using your gifts, you're all pursuing your ministry, you're all coming together in love. That's that's ideal. We should be growing in love, applying love, but it has to be the unhypocritical love, the genuine love, true love, because hypocrisy, uh, a love with hypocrisy is not agape love at all. Abhor what is evil, cling to what is good. Be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Give preference to one another in honor. See, that reciprocal devotion, reciprocal preference. I remember, uh, oh, I was just a little kid, but um, Colonel Theme developed the doctrine of uh, prefer and defer. Any of you remember that? Old timers maybe remember that? All right. In any event, that's what this is about. You prefer something, whatever it is, but because your loved one prefers something else, right, you want the latest action pack, shoot 'em up, uh, you know, explosions and swords and dragons and and all that. But you know, you've seen maybe 14 of them in a row. And your wife wants the um, the, the, the lovey-dovey romance kind of chick flick, right? You know. Well, so you throw one of those in every 15 <laughs> every 15 action movies you go to, kind of a thing. <laughs> So you have your preferences and you might prefer to do one thing and yet you defer to do the other. Why? And they're more important than you. That's right. Glorifying Christ is more important than gratifying your personal desires. And by applying agape love to that other person, you are glorifying Christ. You are exhibiting the love that he had for each one of us. I guarantee he would prefer not to go to the cross. He told us that. And then he said, not my will, but thine be done. See, that in any way possible, let this cup pass by me. We know what his preference was. But his obedience to the Father took him to the cross, and we, we love that. All right, so here's an application of hypocrisy. Hypocrisy will destroy love. In fact, a hypocritical love is not agape love. Over to 2 Corinthians then, 2 Corinthians 6.6. 6. See, what you don't know is while you're all retreating on May 1st and May 2nd, we're going to have a movie night at, at uh, Kevin's house in <laughs> oh, I'm teasing. All right. We're going to be home, enjoying our children. That's right, taking care of the children. Quality dad time. We'll, we'll read scripture. We'll lead family devotions. Then put the kids to bed and watch a movie. I'm going to get in trouble. Let's go to 2 Corinthians 6. 6. The, um, notice it says working together. And then it's supplied with him because that's understood. Uh, we are, when you understand our function in the church age, And understand that we are fellow workers with the Father. Um, It's kind of unfortunate that we have a chapter break here. At the end of chapter 5 of 2 Corinthians, you notice um, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creature. The old things have passed away, new things have come. And it says, verse 18, all these things, or all things, are from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ. God the Father reconciled us to himself through Christ. We are brought entirely to the realm of the Father through Christ. Not like a human reconciliation where you give and take and meet in the middle somewhere in a compromise. We are brought entirely to the Father through Christ. He took not one step in our sinful direction. He brought us every step of the way to His righteous and holy, perfect position. And so, uh, when you have God there in verse 18, color code that for the Father who reconciled himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Now, understand the ministry of reconciliation is a paterological ministry. It is not Christological. It's paterological because Christ is the vehicle through which reconciliation takes place. But the father is the one doing it, uh, not only accomplishing the activity, but he's also the goal of the reconciliation. We are brought to the father. No one comes to the father, but by me. So he's given to us the pedagogical ministry of reconciliation, namely that God the Father was in Christ. God the Father was in Christ. Remember, it's God who's at work in you, both to will and to do of his good pleasure. God the Father was in Jesus Christ to will and to do of his, God the Father's, good pleasure. Important that you understand that because Christ, as we said, not my will but thine be done, Uh, from the standpoint of his humanity, would not have gone to the cross. So God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. And he, the Father, has committed to us the word of reconciliation. That's Christ himself. He is the word of reconciliation. Now, therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. This is our ambassadorial function. We think of our priestly function, which is in Christ, which is uh, under our high priest, Jesus Christ, the apostle and high priest of our confession. And we can understand the Christology of our priesthood. But our ambassadorship is patrological. So we are ambassadors for Christ as though God, again, that's the Father, we're making an appeal through us, just like the Father worked through Christ, reconciling the world to himself. So the Father is making an appeal through us. We beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God the Father. All right. So when you get to chapter six and it says working together, clearly it's with him and specifically it's with God the Father. We also urge you not to receive the grace of God in vain. And so once you are reconciled, live the Christian way of life, the reconciled life under the principles of grace. Breaks the heart. Those that get saved, they're reconciled, they're in the right relationship with the Father, but they don't live the Christian way of life under the principles of grace. And they don't have the the victory, the fullness, the the glories that the Christian life is designed for. So don't receive the grace of God in vain. Down to verse 3, giving no cause for offense in anything so that the ministry will not be discredited. First item of business when you abandon grace in your Christian walk is you've just discredited the ministry. (laughs) Non-grace oriented believers, legalistic believers or licentious believers, both discredit the ministry. And unbelievers look at you without a grace orientation and they say, well, why do I want any part of that? so the ministry may not be discredited but in everything commending ourselves as servants of god in much endurance in afflictions in hardships in distresses now if this was uh, if this was put on a job sheet for a posting a job posting say these are the expected uh, activities in the workplace <laughs> would you read through that job posting and get all excited and say oh i'm going to give them my resume I hope they call me for an interview. Look at this posting. Look at this, these uh, activities here. In everything, committing ourselves to the service of God. In much endurance, in afflictions, in hardships, in distresses, in beatings, in imprisonments, in tumults, in labors, in sleeplessness, in hunger. Yep, sign me up. Because notice, all of those are simply external circumstances and details of life. It goes on. In purity, in knowledge, in patience, in kindness, in the Holy Spirit. Oh, yeah, I like those things. We'll see, when you have a version of the Christian way of life that tries to have verse 6 and yet denies verse 5, you've got an incomplete picture of what we're called upon to do as imitators of Jesus Christ. In any event, what do we have there at the end of verse 6? Unhypocritical love. Genuine love. If you're a hypocrite, you have no agape love. And it goes on in the word of truth and the power of God by the weapons of righteousness for the right hand and for the left. Understand the weaponry that's available to us, not simply the, the uh, sword of the spirit in the panoply of Ephesians six is an offensive weapon in that armor metaphor, but it's not our only weapon. We have uh, the two headed weapons here, righteousness for the right hand and the left. All right, so we've got uh, those Romans twelve nine, Second Corinthians six six. We also have First and Second Timothy. In both cases, it's chapter one verse five. First and Second Timothy, chapter one and verse five. The First Timothy one five says, "But the goal of our instruction is love, from a pure heart and a good conscience and an unhypocritical faith." A sincere faith. Just that if you're a hypocrite, you'll have no agape love. If you're a hypocrite, you're not walking by faith. The goal of our instruction is agape. From a pure heart and a good conscience and an unhypocritical faith. Chapter 1, verse 5 of 2 Timothy. For I am mindful of the unhypocritical faith within you. See, this is why He's equipped. <laughs> to produce the, the the goal of our instruction is love right i am mindful of the unhypocritical faith within you which first dwelt in your grandmother lois and your mother eunice and i'm sure that it is in you as well you know what a testimony what a testimony his father was a greek we don't know anything about his father or grandfather evidently unbelievers but thank god for godly women for mother and grandmother here in timothy's case that that were able to ground him in the scriptures In spite of their pagan husbands, James three seventeen and First Peter one twenty two. James one seventeen. I'm sorry, three seventeen. It's interesting. When you notice hypocrisy at work, you'll understand which wisdom is motivating that. Because it's not God's wisdom. And uh, in this section of James 3, you've got, uh, from, say, verse 13 down to 18, you've got an essay on the two forms of wisdom in the cosmos. God's wisdom and not God's wisdom. All right, Because not God's wisdom is cosmos wisdom, which is um, not that which comes down from above. You look at that in verse 15. So it says, Who among you is wise and understanding? Let him show by his good behavior his deeds and gentleness of wisdom. Are you wise and understanding? Live the word of God. Manifest your wisdom to this lost and dying world. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your heart, do not be arrogant and so lie against the truth. How many of these ministries we're observing are, um, this verse here, verse 14, is descriptive of them. Bitter jealousy and selfish ambition. This wisdom is not that which comes down from above, but is, notice now, earthly, natural, demonic. Earthly, natural, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there is disorder and every evil thing. I mean, that's government. That's politics. That's business. That's corporate America. That's, uh, that's the, the cosmos we live in. You know, put that up on a bulletin board at work. Hmm. But what's God's wisdom? It's first pure, then peaceable, gentle, reasonable, full of mercy and good fruits, unwavering, and then there it is, without hypocrisy. Without hypocrisy. I can't tell you, in, in my own personal evangelism, folks I've met, um, more often than not, in, in countless, countless opportunities, talking to them about how they grew up or talking to them about uh, if they've ever gone to church or things like that, most folks I've met are sick of church and they're sick of the hypocrisy. They're just sick of it. And, and they, they don't have any framework there. They're all the same. They're all just different versions of the same hypocrisy. And so why bother? And that's uh, it's a sad commentary on where we are. Because that's not God's wisdom from above. And then finally, First Peter one twenty two. Since you have an obedience. To the truth, purified your souls for an unhypocritical love of the brethren. Fervently love one another from the heart. For you've been born again, not of seed which is perishable, but imperishable. You have been born again, not from perishable seed. See, your earthly birth, your physical life was born from perishable seed. Not true in the case of your spiritual life. You were fathered by imperishable divine seed. This is something I've been working on in my own recreational studies. I don't know if that will teach it anytime soon. But the uh, the paternal DNA that we have, and that's probably a wrong term, but the, the provision from God the Father that is our new nature in Christ. We are partakers of the divine nature. And we receive the... Uh, whatever you want to call it, the the paterological divine genetics from the imperishable seed the moment of our birth. And this is a passage that describes that. And it's imperishable. So how do you lose that? (laughs) You don't. You can't. That's right. Another nail in the coffin of those Arminians that try to tell you you can lose your salvation. Alright, so there's a good sampling. Romans 12... 2 Corinthians 6, 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, James, and 1 Peter. All demonstrating the fact that hypocrisy is anathema to the agape love of the Christian way of life. It just has no place in the Christian way of life. Secondly, this message distinguishes between anonymity and secrecy. The the message distinguishes between anonymity and secrecy. Verses two and three. There's a difference in the way I typically use the terms. Uh, anonymity is fine. It's, it's desirable. It's commendable. It's a good thing if uh, you're motivated to give the maximum glory to Christ. Secrecy is uh, is a problem when it's a cloak for um, carnality. All right. When it's a cloak for carnality. Now. We're not going to be hard and fast on these terms, uh, particularly because there's Bible verses that use secrecy in positive ways. Uh, Your father who sees in secret will repay. Okay, so I might want to re-render that verse in English to to what you do, do in anonymity. In volitional anonymity to the greater glory of Jesus Christ. And your father who sees your volitional anonymity will repay. And that way we can uh, reclaim the term secrecy there (laughs) for what it is. Now this is fairly parallel to teaching out of Matthew chapter 10. When uh, he sent out the 12, he first commissions the 12 and he sends them out on their first training assignment. He gave them instructions along this line. Try to imagine. Try to imagine this is now 3 years later. He he called out the 12. He gave them these instructions. He sent them ministering. And now three years later, they're getting close to their own full-time ministry after he's going to be uh, crucified, resurrected, gone. They're going to be apostles of the church. And he's giving them instructions identical to what he gave them three years prior. And uh, nothing insulting about it. It's a good reminder. It's a good review. So over in Matthew chapter 10, verses 26 and 27, you'll notice... He says, therefore, do not fear them. And this is in the uh, context of the adversaries that are calling him Beelzebul and and, uh, assigning demonic activity to his ministry. Do not fear them, for there is nothing concealed that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. And the vocabulary is pretty interesting because the idea of concealment, the idea of uh, hiding things is uh, is. I mean, just when you do your vocabulary studies, you end up in realms of things that are cryptic, things that are, uh, you know, functions of cryptology and and the nefarious aspects of of concealment. But things that are unveiled, unfolded, revealed are your realms of apocalypse, your realms of uh, revelation, unfolding, unveiling. Apocalypse is a great thing. Our, Our world has turned apocalypse into something ugly. There's something to be afraid of. Ooh, you know, the apocalypse is upon us. As if it's, it, they're equating apocalypse with um, the wrath of God destroying the world. Okay? Apocalypse is the unfolding, the unveiling, the revealing of Jesus Christ. It's just the Greek word for revelation. And we're not afraid of revelation. Our Savior is about to be revealed to this world. Praise God. Uh, we ourselves are going to be revealed to this world. Um, uh, there's, There's apocalypse is a good thing revelation is a good thing it means that the unfolding wisdom of god is going to be put on display for uh devotion and worship and love and embracing but see they've turned that word around to apply to the uh to the applications of wrath and judgment and destruction of the world in their mind apocalypse is just simply uh you know the world coming to an end well isn't that just like the adversary to call the Kettle black and to call good evil and evil good and get people turned around in their in their uh, terminology. So uh, so we see it here it says, do not fear. Then there is nothing concealed that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. What I tell you in the darkness, speak in the not, in the light. Now, notice what I tell you in the darkness, speak in the light. What you hear whispered in your ear, proclaim upon the housetops. These are Jesus' instructions to His disciples. So, He comes back to it again now, three years later. He comes back to it again in Luke chapter 12. And we've got a couple of aspects here that we want to examine. and We've got eight minutes to do it. We start with the hypocritical cover-ups. They will be unveiled. They will be revealed. They are, in fact apocalyptic hypocritical cover-ups will be apocalyptic they will be revealed he will make them clear there is nothing covered up that will not be apocalypto revealed so all your cover-ups all your cover-ups again back to politicians and their cover-ups And all kinds of things. You know, what was worse? uh, The the Watergate break-in or the cover-up afterwards? The uh, adultery with Monica Lewinsky or the cover-up afterwards? Yeah, they're both wrong (laughs) when it comes down to it. But these cover-ups... Why do you cover up? Why do you go through mechanisms of deception in order to disguise what's been done? (laughs) Because what's been done is not right. (laughs) All right. And so it's hypocritical. Now, when will they be revealed? That's interesting because it doesn't tell us in verse two, there is nothing covered up that will not be revealed. Well, when doesn't say. I can put forth a number of uh, occasions and realms in which it is revealed. First of all, they're presently being witnessed right here and now. The angels are observing. And every hypocritical activity in the right here and now is being observed in the right here and now. And the angels that present themselves to the Father's throne, like we read about in Job 1 and Job 2, they are being uh, quizzed. They're being examined, they're being tested as far as where they've been, what they're watching, and what they're learning. Have you considered my servant Job? See. And so, as the angels observe the hypocritical cover ups, and as they present themselves for instruction to, uh, to the Lord on his throne, have you considered this uh, hypocritical cover up <laughs> and the opportunity to reveal the truth? So angels presently witness them. And of course, the fire, the judgment seat of Christ, will expose them. That's their ultimate revelation. When uh, everybody thought, oh, this is such great work. Oh, this is such a good thing. Oh, this is such a godly person. Isn't he wonderful? And uh, had no idea of the hypocrisy behind it all. And they get there to the to the uh, judgment seat of Christ, hopefully. Or they get there to the great white throne, if they're unbelievers. And they're going to see everything that they thought was glorious turned out. What do you know? It was wood, hand, stubble. Look at that. The fire just burned it up. Look at that thing go. Wow. Imagine that. I use the judgment seat of Christ for your application because that's where you're going. Um, This verse, however, is written to Jewish people. And their judgment will be the wilderness judgment of Israel. Uh, If you want scripture on that, it's in Ezekiel, Ezekiel chapter 20. Uh, The Jews listening to this message will not go to the judgment seat of Christ unless they cross over into the church before their death. It's only the church that attends the judgment seat seat of Christ. Believing Israel goes to the wilderness judgment of Israel. Still, the same principle their Wood, hay, and stubble is going to be burned up. It will be exposed. It will be revealed for what it is. So those are the hypocritical cover-ups. Now, that's the first half of verse 2. I want you to notice, you can divide verse 2 in half. Just split it right down the middle. Nothing covered that will not be revealed. Nothing hidden that will not be known. And those are it's not repeating the same thing twice. It's actually two separate sides of the coin. Likewise, in verse 3, there's the twin realities. Again, you can put a little mark in there and, and notice how verse 3 is divided in half. Accordingly. Whatever you have said in the dark will be heard in the light. What you have whispered in the inner rooms will be proclaimed on the housetops. So there's two halves of of each of these two verses. Hidden. So here's the second side of that coin then. Hidden faithfulness will also be made known. That's the second half of verse 2. Hidden faithfulness will also become God know, uh, become known. God, the Father, sees in secret and will repay, according to Matthew six, verses four and six, hidden faithfulness. So if we distinguish in the vocabulary of verse two between things covered up and things hidden, we can understand that there are two conditions by which um, you or I, any of us, would um, keep things discreet. One's a carnal reason and one's a godly reason. If we keep things discreet um, because we're covering up something, if we're keeping matters discreet because we're actually cloaking carnality, then that's obviously the carnal motivation and and uh, that will be revealed and, and that's wrong. But in the second half of the verse, something hidden, we may be motivated to keep things discreet for godly purposes, for the desire in the promotion of our anonymity so as to not distract from the glory of Of Jesus Christ, in other words, to operate as an invisible hero, to operate as uh, uh, one that wants to see Christ glorified and not have that glory diminished by uh, intrusion of personality into the mix. In other words, uh, maybe it's uh, an anonymous uh, financial donation or maybe it's uh, a work of service where. Um, you don't want it known who it was that accomplished whatever it was that was accomplished. See, And why do you do that? Well, Matthew chapter 6 is so that you don't confuse the issues and so that praise doesn't get misdirected to you and so that credit is not diminished from Jesus Christ. Now, I am at the top of the hour. It is 11 o'clock, but you owe me three minutes, so we'll uh, we'll just keep going. <laughs> and since I am such a legalist, I'm going to take all three minutes. But you'll notice in Matthew chapter six, the. Um, the problem here again is uh, or the uh, conflict again, it has hypocrites in view. In Matthew 6 to when you give to the poor, do not sound a trumpet before you, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues on the streets, so that they may be honored by men. Truly I say to you, they have the reward in full. So you, you go back to the to the little box over there and you, you ring the bell and say, Hey, everybody, look at me. I'm, I'm, I'm putting money here in the box. Well, aren't you special? Boy, look at that. I wish I was you. Isn't that something? Okay. It says, when you give to the poor, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. That is how anonymous you can do it. So your, your, your friend doesn't know, your neighbor doesn't know, your enemy doesn't know. In fact, your left hand doesn't even know what your right hand did. That's how anonymous you've done it. So uh, your giving will be in secret so that your father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. This is the anonymity to produce the greater glory for Jesus Christ. Similar thing with the prayers when you contrast verse 5 with the hypocrite prayer and the uh, secret prayer in your uh, closet, in your inner room, in your privacy of your own home, the faithful and visible prayer warriors for what they are. So we split up verse 2 in half, and I think we do the same thing here with verse 3. Words spoken in darkness will be judged, but private testimonies for Christ will be publicly celebrated. The judgment seat of Christ will expose them as gold, silver, and precious stones. Again, when we divide up verse 3 of Luke 12, making a distinction between things said in the dark and things whispered in the inner rooms. I think we can look at the verbal testimonies in uh, two ways. Word spoken in darkness will be judged. Matthew 12:36. Every careless word will come into an account. And I'm not looking forward to that because I know I've had many careless words. But then private testimonies for Christ will be publicly celebrated. What you have whispered in the inner rooms. What you have whispered in the inner rooms. And I think the, uh, the most rewarded believers in the church age are not going to be the, uh, the famous preachers those that are known for their oratory and their preaching and and all of that, in the very public venues in which they've held forth and expounded and taught and preached and all this other kind of stuff. It's going to be the invisible heroes that have whispered in the inner rooms the quiet words of encouragement and evangelism that have just gone one-on-one in the inner rooms, in the coffee shops, in the neighborhoods, in the workplace. The little conversations here and there where Christ is glorified and the the word of God is proclaimed. Proclaimed in the housetops. The judgment seat of Christ will expose them as gold, silver and precious stones. All right. Well, that's my three minutes. Um, This is the first of the emphases is uh, hypocrisy. Emphasis number two is true fear. You know, are you scared for your life? (laughs) Is it a matter of life and death? Well, it's no big deal that's only physical life the one you need to fear is the one with authority to cast into hell and the fear of the lord is what we need to promote and that's what we'll talk about next week thank you father for your truth thank you for the uh, blessings of your word thank you for the simplicity of the christian way of life the simplicity of living what we learn father and and uh, the reality that is that has no hypocrisy as any part of it thank you father in christ's name we pray amen